Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Mick Garrison. This is Postmortem AMA, where you get to ask me anything. And the way you do it is through producer Joe Russo, who has your questions for me today. Joe, how are you doing? I'm I'm good, Mick. I mean, it's been a weird week in America. Oh, no <laughs> kidding. It's been a weird four years in America. Yeah, but I think it was uh, this was the cherry on top. Uh, yeah. So, but it, it's a it's a perfect segue actually to our first question. Um, awesome. Nick Roberts asks. During tumultuous times, do you prefer escapism or social commentary when choosing films to watch? Well, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, I think stuff like His House does both. It is, yeah. It's great entertainment and it's also heavy social comment. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't make a choice, but it, it does feel like sometimes things are just a little too light for me to appreciate when we're in the middle of stuff like this. I do like the escapism of a good comedy or a good horror movie or a good thriller or something like that. But I also, uh, I feel connected to the world in a very deep way. And, and when something as overwhelming as is what's going on right now in our world, I don't really want to turn my attention away from it for too long. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I, after after the attack on the Capitol last week, I, I went for a comedy just because I just couldn't. There was just so much. We watched so much news that day. Yeah, you know? oh, I'll, I'll do that, too. You know, there's no question I will. But uh, I do. Uh, I do watch CNN and MSNBC and the local news quite a bit more than than usual. Yeah, especially right now. Did you get uh, did you get any writing done? That's that's an interesting question. Uh, not since, uh, the explosion of the last couple of weeks, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's really hard. Uh, and I think sometimes it's okay to give yourself that reprieve and, and just kind of let yourself absorb it emotionally, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I hike several miles every day. So that, that is my escape too. I try not to put, uh, put the news channels in my ear pods. I'll usually listen to an audio book or something. Smart. Uh, but, but um, yeah, I, we all need relief occasionally, and I don't want to be become one of those people who's always angry about what's going on in the world, and try and keep it in context. But this is important stuff. Maybe the most important stuff that's happened since, well, certainly since nine eleven. I agree. It reminded me a lot of that day. Um, obviously, the death toll was was significantly lower, but the scope yeah. uh, and the importance of it. Um, but between this and, and yeah. the coronavirus and all, but this is a horror movie. Yeah. Let's get off of politics. So, well, actually, before we get into horror though, uh, okay. this is an interesting question, you know, and, and we get a lot of questions about filmmaking and we do have some of, of those today too, but I thought this was a little different. Uh, Patrick R. McDonough asks, do you have any advice for new podcasters? Well, that is different. It's it's uh, we've been doing this. This is our fifth season now, 
And the, the main advice is uh, don't look to it as a career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree with that. <laughs> percentage wise, there are not a whole lot of people, but you know, it's, it's basically what I can only speak for myself is I'm having conversations with people who fascinate me. It's an interview con uh, podcast rather than a discussion of favorite movies or, you know, counting down my 10 favorite films or books or comics or whatever. It's really a conversation with people who inspire me, which is why I got into um, journalism back in, in my college days, back in my teenage days, even before that in high school. The first interview I ever did was with Ray Bradbury. And then I did Rod Serling. And when I was, you know, barely in my teens, you know, um, so it's got to be something you love. It's something you have passion for that you want to keep doing. Um, and, and that may be your top 10 horror movies this week or, or, or what's going on. But uh, passion to me is everything and not expecting to make a living off of it is an important part of that. You do it out of love and passion and, and, uh, and hopefully you will find an audience that, and if, if there's a unique way to do it, um, there are so many different podcasts, so many uh, similar themes and, and the like, but find a way to make it your own. Um, in this case, I'm lucky enough to be a filmmaker who's talking with filmmakers, an author who talks with authors and people working within the industry that uh, I am a part of. So um, it makes it a little bit different when you're interviewing filmmakers and, and that's your job too. So if you can find a, a window that makes your experience unique, I think that's, that's the way to go. If not for success, at least for happiness. Passion is contagious. And I think that's why people respond to your interviews because they can tell you have a passion for the subject matter and the subject. And I think that's why, you know, we've been so lucky to have had our show grow so much over the last few years. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. And it's really fun. At first, it, it was just kind of, oh, this would be a, a nice hobby when you introduced me to the people at Podcast One with their interest in doing it. I never thought of doing a podcast until that came up when you talked to them about that. And now here we are in, in season five. Yeah, four, four years later. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> almost, uh, almost a hundred interviews that we've done so far with, uh, with a lot of my idols, people who were friends, people I didn't know, but whose work I knew and appreciated. And, and now it's quite a library we've put together and continue to do so. Yeah. We're very proud of it. Uh, well, switching gears back to horror, um, Haley Daggett asks, how can a young person break into the horror genre right now? Well, think? well, I think it's, it's easier and harder than ever. Um, yep. Yeah, you can make your own movies uh, and and post them wherever you can. Um, getting a job, uh, making money off of that is a very difficult thing. The independent film world, uh, there's so much product out there. It's very difficult to find what's worthwhile and what's not. Um, for me, and this is a long time ago before there was streaming and before there were uh, YouTube sites and, and the internet at all, when I began back in the 80s, um, I was a writer. Uh, and the easiest way you can present your stories and ideas and abilities is in script form. It doesn't cost you anything to write. 
Uh, and then uh, if you are able to find people who find value in the work that you do in that regard, it's easier to do it from a writing point of view. However, these days you have tools that I didn't have when I was a budding young filmmaker, like an iPhone and a laptop um, and an iPad where you can make really high quality films for virtually no budget. The secret is collaborating with very talented people and not necessarily your best friends who may not be the best actors or the best cinematographers or makeup artists or whatever. And, uh, you know, for me, I would just recommend writing and see if you can get it to people who make a difference. And usually you have to do that through agents so that the agents would be the first step. So, Joe, you've come into this field much more recently than I have. So what, what's your point of view? I mean, you know, it's funny, even though we're, we're talking about, you know, years apart, uh, the, the process remains pretty much the same, even with more advances in technology. I mean, it's just about creating really great high-end content, whether that be short films or whether that be screenplays, you know? Um, I think the, the cream has a way to rising to the top. And, you know, if you, if you do genuinely create something that is good, people will find it. And that, that energy is uh, contagious and people want to share it. And, and that's how you get noticed. And I don't think it's necessarily high concept. I think it can be very small in idea, but but really good, you know, and unique and uh, iconoclastic in a way. But do something that stands out from everything else because everyone is exposed to everything. Agents read 30 scripts. They take them home every weekend. And if you don't hook them by page one often... Yeah. Yeah. They may just toss it on, on the stack and mm -hmm. grammar matters, but mostly it is getting them to keep wanting to turn the next page. If you do it through screenwriting, you can make beautiful, professional, polished films on your own, but it's the content that, that is everything. And now, right now in this moment, there are really great uh, websites and YouTube channels and such that, that congregate great horror shorts like Gunpowder and Sky's Alter and Eli Roth's Crypt TV, uh, where they, they're either making shorts or they're, they're acquiring them uh, from independent filmmakers. And those can be great platforms to get your movie seen by hundreds of thousands of people on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's and, something you know, we didn't have when I, was, uh, when I was trying to make my go in the world of writing and directing movies. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, I, I did one for each of the in fun size horror too. Molly Elfman's fun size horror. Uh, you know, I did one for each of those and then I, I directed the feature recently. So I, I, I think there is some progression to that. Uh, that, you know, and it's interesting. Our next question actually kind of bleeds into this a little bit. Um, I Marrow SJ asks, are screenplay competitions a smart investment for unknown screenwriters? I don't know if screenplay competitions were a thing back when you were starting to write, Nick. Uh, no, they weren't. And so I've never entered a screenplay competition. Uh, but it depends. Some of them are commercial ventures. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a way to make money off of hopeful writers. Yep. Uh, but some of them really are connected to judges who are worthwhile that uh, these are things, you know, the blacklist is not a competition that you can enter on your own. Right. 
but um, they do land on the desks of important agents who represent these the agents do look into some of the better competitions. So it depends. The commercial endeavors, I think, are just greedy creeps. Yeah, I think you have to be you have to be careful. There's a lot of people who say that they are a lot of like small little film festivals have a screenplay competition element and it essentially is just a money generating thing for the film festival. You have to be very careful about who you enter into it. Ironically, uh, earlier this week, my writing group put together a list of contests that actually are, are pretty well known and reputable. Uh, so I figured I'd just throw out a couple of the names uh, just to give, sure. give our listeners some direction. Uh, Austin Film Festival is probably the biggest and most preeminent because it's a very writer driven film festival. Yeah, it's all- a great festival. Have you ever been, Nick? I have. I oh, yeah. Participated, yeah, and uh, been on panels and things there. And, and their their screenplay competition is extremely reputable. They get great great people like Nick out to the festival to interact with the people who go. The and people writers, graduate into into successful writing careers from that competition. They really do. They really do. So that's probably one of the. And then the Nichols Fellowship uh, is it's it's sponsored by the Academy. Um, it's it's mm. a really big one. It's that that one tends to i mean i know i've known lots of writers who have made even the quarter and semifinals of that and found representation off of it because it's just such a prestigious list but for genre writers it's a little tougher because it is sponsored by the academy so the list does kind of turn its nose up a little bit to well there are things know. like scream fest and and you know that's here in la so they do have access to some people who yeah can make a difference right but there there are uh, a couple other competitions like final draft big break uh yeah. and and screencraft uh and tracking dashboard and tracking b those those tend to um let genre content kind of uh, bubble to the top uh, as long as the writing's great. So there, there, those are a couple of places that people can look. Um, but outside of that grouping, I would be very leery about film festival competitions. But if you can place in one of those kind of well-known competitions, it does what you said in the last question, which is it allows your piece of material to get in front of the right people and hopefully that opens the doors to a career. Yeah, that's the important thing. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, Greg Green wants to know if you think there's a horror subgenre that is deserving of more cinematic attention. Well, I think anything that uh, that does something new, you know, body horror is always going to be alive and well or unwell. Uh, <laughs> you know, ghost stories. There's still ways to tell ghost stories in a new original way. Um, you know, werewolf movies. Well, let's see if we can ever have an original werewolf movie again. It's been a while. Uh, I, have zombie... faith in, I have faith in Lee Winnell to come up with something interesting. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Here's hoping. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, zombie movies. Uh, I thought that there's no way that there could ever be another original one. And even though it's a couple of years old now, one cut of the dead is like one of the most phenomenally creative uses of a subgenre ever. But is there a neglected subgenre? Well, I wouldn't know because if it's been neglected, I'm not aware of it. Um, but but I, I think the ghost story is something that always gives new life, ironically, because it's about the dead. 
but um, you know, there there are always new ways to tell a ghost story, and and I do it myself in books and in in films, uh, relatively often. And I I think it's a football that you can keep tossing without <laughs> losing air. I think also too horror specifically tends to move in waves. I mean, subgenres tend to. Uh, one will work really well. We'll get a boom in that subgenre, and then it'll get saturated and fade away. And and it, it's very cyclical. I think yeah, um, it'll play itself out. Yeah, yeah but I, I think if you're trying to game the market and say, oh, I'm going to do this one, I, I don't think that's really how it works. I think you just have to write what you're most passionate about, direct what you're most passionate about. Absolutely, and, I and, think that's the most important thing because you know you don't you can't guide the tastes of the cinema going audience. Mm -hmm. And all you can do is do the best work you can. And again, I'll say that the most original work that you can do is what's going to stand out and would have a chance of attention, if not outright success. I agree. Uh, so the next question is actually one that came in for me. Uh, so I will briefly answer it. Uh, Michael Cassie wants to know what's next for Joe. Uh, do you see yourself continuing to direct or focusing more on writing, producing? Um, so I think with the pandemic, um, it kind of prevented a lot of people from directing for a while. Uh, so yes, my goal is to still keep directing, but you know, my, my hope is by the time I do it again, this pandemic will be behind us and, and we can, you know, go back to work safely. Uh, there's a couple of things in the fire for me to direct, um, but, you know, they're, again, they're long-term plays and we're looking kind of past the pandemic. I've been very focused on writing in between, um, just mostly because I've had some great opportunities present themselves over the last, even before the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of gotten me through creatively and financially. Um, and I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, derail that momentum just to, to, to go direct again, but um, I will, I'm sure it will happen when it's supposed to happen. The That's doors right. of opportunity open and you walk through them, whether they're anticipated or not. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Adam analyzes wonders. If you were offered the chance, would you ever consider returning to the critters franchise? No. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that. You know, I think we, we did a really great critters movie. Um, and I don't know how much play there is left in giant toothed uh, dust mops with fangs uh, <laughs> that roll into a ball. You know, I, I, I love the Critters movie that we did, um, but I, I just don't feel uh, that I need to go back to that playground. And honestly, I mean, you, in my opinion, you did the best in the series. So, well, you know, why, you. why, why go back and risk that legacy? You know, that's right. <laughs> Don't want to mess that up. Yeah. No. Uh, Matthew sometimes asks, and this is somewhat related, but I thought you would get a kick out of it. If you would ever consider remaking fuzz bucket. No. <laughs> that is something that could be improved upon but you know i wouldn't mind and and we're we have a conversation planned about uh with disney plus uh, about various projects but i do intend to bring up the idea of an animated series based on fuzz bucket oh that would be really fun i could well, totally see that working so uh, 
who knows it might be it might we might not have seen the last of fuzzy so <laughs> fuzzy and his bucket <laughs> uh justin Haler wants to know uh this is a two-parter um are there any projects of yours you wish you could go back and do a director's cut on let's start with that first not really. I, I don't really like the idea of going back over things that I've already done. Mm -hmm. And most of them pretty much are the director's cut. There's not been a whole lot of things that that I would change other than tighten them up. But, but I don't really like looking back. Um, you know, once something's under my belt, I'm ready to move on and, and be very forward looking in that regard. I'm sure everything I've done could benefit from some more work. But, you know, I don't really want to. Uh, I, I like to, to leave what I've done as it stands and then just continue to move on and hopefully get better each time out. Do you, what do you think about like uh, the directors who do go back and, and kind of tinker? I mean, we just had a new version of the Godfather three come out a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Uh, I mean, do you, and I hear do you, it's great. I, hear I have, it's I've heard it's better. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you go back and, and watch those when they get released by, by some of the filmmakers you enjoy? I, I will do that. I haven't seen that yet. And I haven't seen uh, the Dr. Sleep director's cut either yet. Um, but they're, they're all valid. I can only speak for myself, you know, a huge proportion of the director cuts that I have seen have not been improvements. They've been a bit <laughs> self-indulgent. Um, you know, there's, there is a reason to tighten things as you're getting close to your release date mm -hmm. and, and make it move at its best clip. And sometimes there are things that you're so personally co connected to that you want to put it back in that, Oh, I miss this scene that I wrote that had this going on. And it, if you don't need it, um, it's, it's okay to lose it. Um, right. If it's something that doesn't impact the movie around it in, in a negative sense, if it adds to your movie, put it back in. If it detracts from your movie or makes it a longer experience rather than a better experience then. But I'm only speaking for me. Right. Uh, I, right. I think every director who gets an opportunity to to go back and do a director's cut, if they feel that they really missed out on some things that they would rather have had in there, then by all means, let's see it. I'll tell you, I I really enjoyed um, Mike's director's cut for Doctor Sleep. I I hear great things about it. Yeah, I I, I liked it even I liked it even more than the the version I saw in the theater. I don't know if that's because when I talked to him, when we talked to him on the podcast, I heard such great stories and I, I, his passion was so infectious that when I watched it again, I just, it was a more enriching experience or it was just the director's cut, but either way, it's great. I would, I would definitely check it out sooner than later. Um, the second part of Justin's question is kind of along the same lines, but it's, are there any scenes that were cut from your scripts uh, that you, you wish you had shot? Have you ever gotten to the edit room and cut a script, a scene from a script I've been like, gosh, I really am missing that that piece of material. Not really, not really. You know, by the time we're shooting, well, there's an example, Valerie on the Stairs on on uh, Masters of Horror, my second mm. season episode. We had to cut pages because the production was going over. We didn't have time. The day was going out. It's the only time in my life where I literally pulled pages out of the script and threw them aside. But 
it survived that and it was just fine and maybe even better for it. You know, we just have recorded uh, an episode of the podcast with, uh, with a famous screenwriter and director who talks about how the more he deletes of his dialogue, the better the movie is. And, uh, you know, I, I can understand that point of view. Richard Matheson once said to me, I wish movies didn't have any dialogue. I'd much rather write a movie with no dialogue. So, um, but I, I have no regrets about, uh, about scenes that were in a script that I never shot. Well, on that note, Mick, uh, I look forward to chatting with you again soon. We've got more questions uh, down the pike. And uh, if you have questions for me and Joe, please send them to Joe Russo tweets um, to uh, postmortem PM on Instagram and Twitter and uh, to the postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. So we will see you next time. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mick. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.